Galatians 4, verses 1 through 4. Sons and heirs. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, as we look as we look to your scripture, we look to your holy word, we pray that uh, the words of my mouth might be useful to your people. We pray that you might lead us to, in, to truth and to, uh, to the changing truth that we might be in, uh, conformed to the image of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So let me just quick check. Are all the kids gone? Okay, because one of the things I wanted to start with, I had to make sure the kids weren't in here for, because... You know, you don't want to be the guy who talks about old St. Nick and its legends in front of the littles, right? So, heaven forbid I be the guy who burst that bubble. For one of my children, apparently, I did get to be the guy who did that. We won't mention my 12-year-old by name, but apparently I was the one who let the cat out of the bag on said traditions. I think it's just she was just too smart for her own good and figured out the pieces of the puzzle. But one of the things that I think is interesting, St. Nick, it rings true to us. It makes us feel that that's the way the world works and ought to work. You know, be good, be nice. Somebody's watching, somebody's keeping track, somebody's keeping a list. And at the end of the year, you get what you, what? Deserve. Deserve is a strong way. And if you're more optimistic, you say earned. But that's how we kind of feel. Doing good neighbor things helps you become a good neighbor, and therefore, when you do good neighbor things, you create a good neighborhood. And that's the way it works. You go to work, and you do good things, and then you get bonus. You get promotion. You get good reviews. You get blessings. That's the way it works. Um, you, we all know that there's always usually some stressed out family member around the holidays. For me, for my family, it's me. Um, and we have to tiptoe around, and you just recognize it. Sometimes you just have to avoid, the, and so that you can keep the balance and make things work well. And this is how we know the world functions. So in many ways, the St. Nick story is how we think merit and demerit is supposed to work. I even went to a, a God-centered Christian college that was supposed to be all about the grace of God, and yet the way that we lived with our handbook and our dorm codes 
and our demerit systems, which I fully explored the boundaries of, it didn't feel like we understood grace. But we did understand merits and demerits. And that's kind of what the Santa story is all about. And so that's kind of my wife's and my hesitancy. We weren't sure what we were going to raise our kids with. And then they went to preschool. And they came back with the stories. We're like, well, looks like we're going with that one. So here we have this Sunday after Christmas. The, the, the good news of Jesus has come. And we look to Galatians chapter 4. But when the set time had fully come, when the set time, that means God had been active, God had been present, God had been looking to, the, to what he wanted to do in the scope of human history. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Paul is writing to Gentile believers He's writing to the Gentile believers in the, town, in the Galatian region who are being persuaded that they need to adopt old and ancient Jewish practices in order to be in this new Jewish sect, this Christian following, this Christ following. They needed to adopt circumcision. They needed to adopt law observation and observance in order to be fully included in God's people. And so Paul writes this letter to forcefully respond to this argument, to respond to these teachings that are sneaking into the church that were not a part of his original gospel he preached to the Gentile believers. You see, in the previous chapter, chapter 3, uh, Paul preached to those Galatian believers, and he explained that those under the law, which, by the way, is everyone, those under the law cannot receive the divine inheritance through obedience to the law. Forget Santa. Forget that system. Forget the merits and demerits. He explained that all of us are under the law, but we do not, again, we do not receive our divine inheritance by succeeding, by being effective, in our obedience to the law. Instead, the law is better seen as a taskmaster or a tutor or a teacher, a disciplinarian. The Greek word it comes from is the same Greek word that we get pedagogy from. It's a teacher, it's a guide, it's a ruler. But you, can you remember the teachers of your, did anybody here have those like um, strict parochial schools with the, with the rulers on the knuckles kind of experience? Don't raise your hand because I don't want to see the knuckle damage. But we have this idea that there's, in schooling, there's the strict taskmaster. For us nowadays, it's a little bit softer, but we still have to learn our grammar, don't we? We still have to learn our multiplication tables so that we don't have to pull out our phones to do basic maths, right? I'm speaking at my children here. There's a strictness to those who raise us, who teach us. And if we think about the Old Testament law as that tutor, that disciplinarian, that teacher, that's probably a picture of what Paul was trying to help us grasp. We're all under the law, but it does not, obedience to the law does not bring us eternal glory. It does not bring us eternal um, inheritance. No, under the law, we have no rights. Under the law, we have only discipline. Under the law, we are slaves. In chapter 3, verse 19 and 24, we are slaves to God's household. Paul begins to announce this promise, the promise of the new 
life of the new gospel, the life in Christ. Now that faith has come, now that faith in Christ has come, we are no longer slaves to the tutor, to the teacher, to the disciplinarian. We are no longer slaves serving a tough taskmaster. Instead, we are God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. We are God's children. If you think about this, as you I think about someone who's under the law and under the oppression and under the strict, you're always wondering, am I good enough? Have I measured up? Have I been noticed? Am I out of line? I remember I got to spend a little bit of time at Paris Island, which our own Dylan is going to be going to very soon. That's where they train up new uh, recruits to become Marines. And I, had a, I was in a high school group where we were in a high school ROTC. And so for a fun week, a week of fun and exploration, we went to Paris Island. That's a story for another day. It just was not fun. But at one point, you're just hoping that you're not seen messing up. One time, I, I, it, was, it was a long night. We were prepping our stuff, and, and just, we were baking our racks. We were doing all this stuff, and it was never good enough, never good enough, never good enough. And finally, we were having help putting together our webbing, and I just, I leaned up against a rack. I'm in 11th grade. I got noticed. I did not measure up, John. And Sergeant Pugh came over, and he grabbed that rack, which is a big metal bunk bed, for those who don't know what a rack is. It's a two-story. He, he decided to play dominoes with it, and he threw it, and like, that's how I feel under the law, under the watchful eye of perfection, of how do you measure up. There's always this idea, I think, that some people have who don't understand Jesus and Jesus and his gospel, that they don't ever want to set foot inside a church. I've had people say it. Ah, oh, I can't go in there. I don't want what? Lightning to strike. By the way, where did the mythology come that God only uses Lightning. Because another time, I was at a festival, and it was a down the street of, in, down in Collinswood, New Jersey, wonderful huge day, about half the size of the Mushroom Festival here. Um, but I just heard these young ladies that, you know, from their dress, you would probably guess they weren't your typical youth group kids. But they were looking for a public restroom, and they saw that there could be a restroom in the Episcopal Church. And again, do you know what they said? Can't go in there. We will be, what? Struck by lightning. As if God, the cosmic Santa, is up there knowing who's naughty and nice and who's done so many bad things that they don't even get to darken the door of a church. What a misnomer. What a misinterpretation. What a deconstruction of what the good news of Jesus is. And somehow, we have to be better at proclaiming what the good news actually is so that people don't think that they can't come into a church when this is the actual place for people. This is the actual place you come. Um, the, the analogy that I have, instead of it being the place where God doles out heavenly light bulbs, lightning bolts, why don't we think of this more as like the mash unit? Now, that's betraying my age. The younger people are like, what's a mash unit? Like, it's a TV show from the 80s. And the other people are like, oh, no, it's a, it's a medical hospital, mobile army, surgical hospital. But if you think about this, that the church is the place for people to come and get the first care from being in the world where it's broken and where it's violent, where it hurts them, where lives are being shattered. This is the place. We ought to be the place where people can come to find a place of refuge, a place of triage, a place of care, a place of healing. That is the message of the gospel because under the law, we are all found wanting. 
Under the law, we are never going to match up. Under the law, eventually somebody's going to notice we stepped out of line and send the, the racks flying. But in Jesus, we are not under the scrutiny. We are under adoption. In chapter 4, Paul simply underscores the, his main point. Christ has come in the flesh, born of a woman, to free us from the old master, the law, and to make possible our adoption as members of God's household, no longer as enemies, no longer as foreigners, no longer as distant, no longer as outcasts, no longer as rejects, no longer as sinners, but adopted daughters, adopted sons. We are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in this text here, oftentimes, uh, just because of the way the Greek language worked, uh, sometimes the Greek language will talk about brothers. But in context, the brothers means all humanity. So that's where we say brothers and sisters, or we say brethren. But sometimes, the idea is being specifically stated. So let me read it again. When the time... When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Is that like childship? Is that like to be sons and daughters? Yes, no. Let me explain. When he's writing to a Roman audience in a Roman context and he starts talking about adoption, their construct, their, 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 their way that they understand adoption is through a Roman setting. And the people who were adopted from slavery into sonship were very rare cases and special cases, but it was usually well-talented, appointed, measured slaves who then became sons. And that you wanted to be a son, not daughter. Why? Because sons were the ones who inherited the full blessing, the fullness of the inheritance, the fullness of rights and privileges of that society. And Paul is trying to say that in Christ, we are not, some of us are sons and some of us are daughters. We are all adopted, men and women, children and old, foreigner and and. and, and, and Jew, we are adopted into God's new family, his new household. The great, all, this, all this Western ideal of equality we have does not come from Rome and it does not come from Greece. It comes from Christ. If you want to read a good book on that, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, does a great job detailing the history of how the Christian ethic, the Christian views have infiltrated our Western ideals, so much so that our Western humanism is now based on the equality of all human beings, but doesn't know its roots or where it came from. But it comes from this teaching that all in Christ are adopted at the highest level, the highest placement, the highest rank, because God shows no favoritism. God shows no partiality in Christ. And that is good news. That is welcoming. That doesn't say lightning bolts when you come in, does it? That doesn't say get your life together and get it all straight so that you can come and be part of the church people, does it? No, it says adoption is I see you and you have a home. I see you and you're welcome here. I see you and I claim that you are now one of us. Now, most of us have been around long enough to, to follow the newspapers and at least follow the one 
noble royal family that we all know about. I've never understood, I'm, I don't mean to offend anybody, if you care about the royal family events, I've never gotten it. I don't quite get it. I've been over, I've seen the, I've see, I've seen the castle. I tried to get the, the, the guard to smile. I failed. I thought I was funny. He did not. But I don't get it. But one of the things that we can see from the history with the noble family, and the royal family, is they aren't that noble, are they? They're not that well-behaved, are they? But they have certain duties and responsibilities, and some live up to it better than others. And I think that's a picture for us, too, is that when we are adopted into the king's family, it's not because we are kingly. It's not because we are royalty. It's not because we met the mark and live up to the reputation. No, in fact, we are brought in and then are now taught how to live as daughters and sons of the king. And when we slip up, the king is there to say, listen, child, we are living a new way. You're part of the family. But notice what doesn't happen there. You're not kicked out of the family. You don't lose your title. You don't lose the title of being a child of the living God. You might suffer some discipline. You might suffer some, some challenge, some chastisement, some, some encouragement even. But you're not rejected because in Christ you are adopted. And adopted makes you a family member forever. That's what it means to be free and to be part of God's household. It's no longer our relationship to the taskmaster, the law, that determines our situation in the divine household. Instead, it's our relationship to Christ and Christ himself, the rightful son, the rightful heir, that determines our new status in this family. And consequently, as adopted sons and daughters, we do what children do. We call their father, daddy. When Jesus said, pray to the father, Abba. And receive, we receive what children receive, blessings and inheritance. I was listening to a man who's made a mark for himself. He's made videos, he's made movies, he's a director, he's an entrepreneur, and he started out as a guy who was a 16-year-old who left home, um, had a child at age 16 out of wedlock, and then made his name in New York City. And now that he's done very, very well for himself, he has his kids in private school, and he goes, I don't know if I'm sparing them, because it was some of those really difficult times that made me succeed, that made me who I was, and so forth. But you see, we have a God who, who pours out his blessings on his children, who cares for them, who knows what we need and can make that call of what hardship do we need to go through to form us? What hardship do we not need to go through? But all along the way, he tells us, I see you, I know you, I love you. And so I want you to know that um, all of us are in different stages and different phases. Um, one of my family members uh, lost his father over this past week, and I talked with others here in this church there's been multiple people. We're at that stage and age where we are knowing a lot of people who are going home. Some of us have, are remembering people who went home early, earlier than they should have, earlier than we would ever have wanted. And some have lived a full and rich life. The struggles that we all have are not uniform and are not equitably distributed, are they? And we don't have to look. We can look outside the walls. We can go just down the road. I drive through Chester every time I come to church. 
they don't have the ease and blessings that we have here in Chester County. And it's just 30 minutes away. We understand that God is present through our hardships, through our sufferings, through our sorrows. And that while in this life it is not equitable, we do see that in Christ all things will be made equal. In Christ, all things will be made right. In Christ, all wounds will be healed. All tears will be comforted. All tears will be wiped away and dried up eventually. But in the meantime, God sees his children and he knows them by name and they are part of his family and he will not forsake you. So if you're feeling like you might be one of the people who is not measured up, he sees you and he knows you And in Christ, he will not forsake you. If you feel like you're one of the people that has been dealt an unfair hand, he's with you. And he sees you. And he's not going to leave you. If you kind of sit there and think, well, I've cried out to you, and God, and where have you been? This may be harder to hear, but he's been there. And he's present. And he will not leave you. Paul's overriding concern for the Galatians in this letter is the distinction between one's relationship to God through faith in Christ as opposed to one's relationship to God through performance and through a legal code. In chapters 2 and 3 of the Galatian letter, Paul emphasizes the difference between law and gospel. And this gets a little heady, gets a little intellectual, gets a little theological law-gospel divide. But he highlights it in a couple of different ways. We know that a person is justified not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus, chapter 2, 16. For, the law, for through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. And I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me, chapter 2, 19 and 20. If justification comes through the law, then Christ died for what? Nothing. Verse 21, now it's evident that no one is justified by God, before God by the law, for the one who is righteous will live by faith, chapter 3.11. And for, the, for if the inheritance comes from the law, no one comes, it no longer comes from the promise. In chapter 4, Paul illustrates the law-gospel difference a little bit differently. That's why he talks in the language of relationships. Look, says Paul in short, You cannot have it both ways. Either you are a child of God because you are under Christ through faith, or you're a slave because you're under the law relating to God through performance to the law. So that brings us to the key question for us. No matter what journey we've had, no matter what hardships we have been through and are in right now, the key question for us in concrete, relevant terms is what's the difference between being a slave under the law from being a child, an heir through faith. See, Paul's real-life concrete um, example isn't necessarily one that resonates with us now. But the people there who were confused and even those who were teaching the wrong teaching were telling people, in order to come into Jesus, you now have to take on the Old Testament law, specifically food, no more bacon-wrapped scallops, and circumcision. We won't explain that. But I don't think that we're really too concerned with food laws in our culture, nor are we really too concerned with 
having to go back and be circumcised. And so that real life example might lose some of its effectiveness in communicating to us. See, Paul did the law uh, to those Galatians by testifying to every man who lets himself be circumcised, he's obligated then to the entire law. And if you want to be justified by the law, well, then you have to cut yourselves off from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. That was chapter five. So what is our issue? Or what are our issues? We, we need to fill in the blank. If you, fill in the blank, if you do this in order to gain God's blessings and, in, and inheritance, Christ will be of no benefit to you. So what are the things that we could fill in of our own world where we try to use it to gain God's favor, his blessings, and inheritance? What are the things that we insert as a mechanism to pull the levers to uh, cause God to pour out his blessing on us? Think of it as a divine vending machine or slot machine. What is it that we're putting in to try to gain out from God? Is it doing devotions? Is it tithing? Is it prayer? Praying a certain number of times a day or certain times or a certain length? I do remember growing up in the youth group culture, there was a while where down in Florida we just played basketball. Well, sorry. A certain group of sweaty boys played basketball right before every group. And we played nonstop until it was time to come in and then we came in just Florida dripping with sweat. And some of us were better basketball players than others, and some of us were not. And some of us, when we made that really outlandish hook shot from beyond the three-point line, we marveled at the luck, but we would say, oh, somebody did his devotions today. Now, it's a funny little joke, right? But what does it betray? If you live right and do the things that honor God, if you pull the God mechanism, if you rub the genie lamp three times and do your devotions, God will let you do the impossible. You can even make a ridiculous three-point hook shot. Now, that's silly, but how silly is it? How do we take that twisting of performance before God? I mean, I've had people in my home weeping at parties because their engagement fell apart. And they said, they said, God owed me. I did it right. I dated the right way. God owed me. You, did any of you kind of like flinch a little when you hear God owed me? I hope so. So what do we do? What are we doing? What are we inserting to try to pull the levers where God owes us? Are we trying to meticulously avoid sin? Do we attend church out of duty? that is trying to pull the levers of God's blessing? Do we make sure that we join a small group? Do we memorize scriptures? Do we only listen to Christian music? Do we believe everything that you're supposed to believe and learn to recite it all? And then the other question is, aren't these good things? Isn't it good to go to church? Isn't it good to sing the songs? Isn't it good to saturate your mind with godly things? Isn't it good to join a group of people to do so? I think the key to this question is, are you doing the things in order to earn God's love? Are you doing the things to earn God's blessing? Are we doing the things of Jesus and doing the things of the church in order to earn our eternal inheritance? to earn our acceptance, to earn our forgiveness? 
Are you ever finding yourself bartering with God? God, if I do this, will you? If we're going into it with those kind of motives, that might be something to stop. That might be a, a point to repent. That might be a point to change the practice. Not saying, well, you know what? I made an idol out of coming to church, so pastor, I'm not going to come to church for a year so I can honor Jesus. If I see none of you here next week, you misapplied the, the passage. But there are no shortage of things that we can think that, that we think that we can do to make God accept us. There's no shortage of things that we do that we think might make God like us more and accept us into his household. We can be good people. We can go to church. We can ascend to the creeds. We can give our hearts to Jesus on on and on and on and on, right? But here the task is anything but abstract. Whenever you expose any of the subtle or not so subtle ways uh, that we attempt to gain divine inheritance, that we attempt to gain divine blessing by obeying God's law, let us stop and hear the voice from heaven. Good luck with that. Let us hear. Might not pan out the way you think it's going to pan out. May we hear a cease and desist from the heavenly realms. And then let us turn again to the sweet gospel of Jesus. The good news. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, that we might be received and adopted with the full rights as his children. That is the good news that we live by today, tomorrow, until he comes again or takes us home. And that is the good news that we take out to the world so that people stop thinking that it's lightning bolts in here or for only the pious and the perfect. But no, this is the triage place for the broken, the he, the, those that need healing, and those that need the love of God because they too are the sons and daughters. Amen? Lord, I pray that we might hear your voice in the moments when we are trying to impress you, please you, or manipulate you. Lord, let us hear from you. Good luck with that. And let us turn again to the sweet gospel. Let us turn to Jesus, your son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the law so that you know us by name and adopt us into your family. We pray this today, tomorrow, and the next. In Jesus' name, amen.